morning, everybody. One of the books that I have read recently that I really enjoyed in the last couple of years is a book called Unbroken by a woman named Laura Hillenbrand. And in this book, she tells the story of a man named Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini is an Olympic track star for the U.S. And uh, he's in the uh, 1936 Berlin Games. He also becomes a lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force during World War II. And it's a beautiful story of suffering, of redemption, of forgiveness. And as part of the story, Louis uh, and his plane go down in the middle of the Pacific. And only three men survive, Louis, Phil, and Mac. And they're floating in a raft, injured from the crash, dying of thirst, hungry, being circled by sharks in this little plastic raft that they're in. And they're at sea for 47 days. And Laura goes on in the story to tell the difference between surviving and not surviving. She says this, Though all three men faced the same hardship, their differing perceptions of it appeared to be shaping their fates. Louis and Phil's hope displaced their fear and inspired them to work toward their survival. And each success renewed their physical and emotional vigor. But Max's resignation seemed to paralyze him. And the less he participated in their efforts to survive, the more he slipped. This story and this little quote from this book, along with similar stories that you may hear from other survival stories, reinforces the fact that hope or the lack thereof in your future directly shapes your present experience. That's exactly where the passage that Brenna just read for us takes us today. You just heard her read all of Micah 4, but really this morning we're going to focus on verses 1 to 5 together. And Pastor Jen will take us the rest of the way next Sunday. But in this passage, what we're going to see is that the hope of the future restoration that God promises is directly tied to the faithfulness of His people in the present. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know we've been walking methodically through the book of Micah. And the first three chapters have all headed the same direction, right? They've all headed down. It's been dark. It's been heavy. It's been a serious call to self-examination, a a call to be serious about sin. And kind of in order to see this sharp contrast that we we turn to this morning in chapter 4, it is that. It is a 180 pivot from where we have been. Kind of got to remind ourselves where we've been, because right, we're chopping up a book that would have been intended to be read as a whole. And so what is Micah doing in chapters 1 through 3? Well, Micah, like most biblical prophets, is more like a lawyer than he is a fortune teller, right? We tend to think of prophets as predicting the future, kind of like Bruno, if your kids are into Encanto, but we don't talk about Bruno, so we'll leave that one alone. Um, because that was for my kids, and they're not even in here. Right? Biblical prophets are actually more like lawyers, where what they're doing is they're evaluating the law, the covenant that, that God made through His people, through Moses, and He's saying, hey, here's the law that was given, and here's where you're failing. 
they bring an accusation, they bring a case against the people of Israel. Because God has placed Israel in a really unique position, both geographically and who they are. They are designed to be and intended to be a light to all the nations. God even placed them strategically, geographically, in the middle of all the continents and all the major empires of the world so that they might be like a little nightlight in your hallway that gives light. Whatever room you come out of, you see that light and you can walk in light of that. They're intended to show people what, what it's like to be the people of God. But the case that Mike is bringing against them is pretty dark. Their light is all but out. The first case he brings is, hey, it's a case of idolatry. Hey, Israel, you are relying on your own strength, on your own beauty, on your own wealth and power. And we saw that in these names that are listed in chapter 1. All these cities that represent all the idols that Israel is going to, relying on their own strength, relying on their own ability to find life their own way. Saying, I'll take God your stuff. I'll take the creation, but I don't need you, the creator. I don't need to listen to you. You have no input in how I live. I'll do my thing. I will be God. And we saw week two, what that starts to look like is greed, coveting, never content. In fact, greed that drives people to get more and want more and more for myself, even if it means I have to run over people around me, hurting them in the process. That's what injustice is, which we talked about last week. Injustice is using your power, your authority, your privilege, your wealth in order to make your life better at the expense of someone else. And withholding mercy and compassion, rather than using all that you have as God intended, which is to be a blessing to those around you, to meet the needs of those around you, to care for those. And in fact, the whole message that Mike is bringing, one of his cases against Israel is you don't even care about the message I'm bringing you. You'd much rather, like a dog, just have your ears scratched and you just want to lean into what feels good. You don't even want to hear this. You're unteachable. You, you've, you're arrogant. You have no disposition towards repentance. And that starts from the top. The corrupt political leaders in Israel, and before you sit back and go, oh, corrupt politicians, there's nothing new. It's not just out there. It's also in the church. The corrupt religious leaders who just sprinkle a little religiosity on top of things and feel like they're good. It's not just the leaders. It infects all the people. Because all of these last couple of weeks are not intended to let you sit back and feel good about yourself and think about those people out there. But in fact, all of those things were directed towards the people who claimed to be God's people. This is meant to be a call for humility for the God's people, to self-examination. Where do you see these things at in your life? And as we've been walking over that the last couple of weeks, our prayers that the Lord has rightly been convicting us, showing us the depths of who we are, of our sin. And the verdict of this case has already come. Judgment is the answer. Micah chapter 1 verse 3 says, look, the Lord is coming down from his dwelling place. And this is not like, hey, good, grandma and grandpa are coming to visit. This is not that kind of visit. This is a don't make me pull this car over type visit. Not good. This is judgment. This is God saying all the way at the end of chapter 3 where we left off last week that because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill, a mount overgrown with thickets. 
God is saying, and you kind of transport in some of what Romans chapter 1 tells us about God's wrath, which is God's wrath is giving us, giving people what they want that's other than Him. Because there's no life anywhere else. And so He actually gives us the judgment, the death that we want. We say, no, thank you to Him. He says, okay, I'll step back, but all that's left there is death. Again, this is not just about Israel and the rest in Micah's day, but the rest of Scripture shows us that these things are true of every human heart, that every human heart, because of sin, is bent inwardly on itself. If left to our own, we will all head towards greed. We will all practice injustice. We will all withhold mercy. What God does in His kindness, even if it doesn't feel like it, is He shows us our sin. The problem is if that's all you see, despair is right around the corner. If all your eyes can see are your own sin and the darkness of your own soul, despair is right around the corner. Maybe that's where you've been over the last weeks, months, years, hours. Maybe all you can see is the depth of your depravity and it's wearing on you. Maybe it's just such a heavy feel in your soul. The sin that's inside of you and the sin outside of you. As George prayed earlier, you just watch the news and it's war. It's corruption. It's everywhere. It feels like it's so dark and so heavy. And that's all we've been talking about in church the last couple of weeks. Seems like everything's beyond, beyond repair and despair is just such an easy place to go to. And in those moments, what you need, like Louis Zamperini in the middle of that raft floating around the sharks, is a hope of a future. A hope of a future where those things don't win. Where they don't have final word. And here's the amazing thing about God, is that God does not use shame and manipulation he doesn't take you out to the woodshed. He doesn't stand over you ready to whack you with the board in order to manipulate your behavior as if that's what he's ultimately after. But what he's after is your heart. What he's after is you. And he says, let me paint for you a picture of a different future. Let me give you hope today. And in that hope, let this vision of my kindness towards you who are undeserving lead you to repentance. And so this morning, as we come to Micah chapter 4, just the first five verses, we see a drastic turn from this focusing inward on the depths of our sin. Now we turn, and the Lord directs our eyes to a future hope that He's promised. And these first five verses can be divided up into three really simple sections. The first three, I'm sorry, the first two verses is a picture of the future promise. Verses three and four is the experience of those promise. What is this going to be like? And verse 5 takes the future promise and brings it into today, into your present. So here again, Micah 4, just the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. 
and the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, Micah begins by directing us to realize that that future in his day is not present for him. He says, in the last days, in later days, he points us to the future. Now, what I need you to do is just hold that phrase, in the last days, and I want you to just kind of stick it over here for a second, okay? We're going to come back to that. It's a really important phrase, but we're just going to leave it there for now. But for right now, I just want you to see it's all the future. If you kind of scan down and put your English grammar hat on, you see all the tenses of the verbs are all future. Micah's saying, one day, this will happen. What's he say? He says, well, he starts off with the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. And I hope you know enough about poetic imagery that you know this has nothing to do with tectonic plates shifting and all of a sudden Jerusalem being higher in elevation than Mount Everest, right? You know this is an image. This is not geographical. This is theological. Mountains in biblical times were really important. Important stuff happens on mountains. In their cosmology, in the way that the ancient world would visualize the universe, it was three tiers. Tier one was the heavens. Tier two, the earth. Tier three, the dark places under the earth, death. And so what are mountains? They're the closest place you can get between the gods and humanity. Sometimes the mountains would be enveloped by clouds and they would actually ascend into the heavens. Can you see that imagery? This is why you hear a lot throughout the the books of Samuel King's Judges that Israel goes up onto high places on mountaintops to worship the false gods of the neighbors. Because mountains were places where heaven and earth would meet. It's where many temples were built for that reason. But this statement is all about the superiority of God's rule in His reign, that His kingdom will extend throughout the whole earth. Now, in part, He already, to be fair, He already has rule over the whole world, right? Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but this is talking about the experience of that rule and reign. In Daniel chapter 2, God gives a vision to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, He gives him a vision of a statue, a giant statue that represents all the different kingdoms of earth. And it's beautiful and it's strong, but it says that a little rock, not cut out by human hands, comes rolling down the hill, smashes into this statue and disintegrates it, turns it into dust that gets carried away in the wind. But this little rock becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. The height of this mountain, it's the same picture, right? Same picture you can see in Micah. The height of this mountain demonstrates the rule and reign. Think like Simba and the Lion King. Everything the light touches is yours, right? They go up onto the highest point of the rock so they can see the extent of their whole kingdom. This is the rule of God. His kingdom is all that will be left one day. All the rival kingdoms will be disintegrated to dust, blown in the wind. No other temple, no other worldview, no other ideology can stand against God. He will have final word. His kingdom will come, and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the result is incredible. All peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come. You realize these nations are the Gentile people. These are the pagan idol worshipers. There's a shift that takes place. 
Because remember, Israel was called to be this light to the nations, to draw all people and to show them, hey, this is what it's like to be known by God and loved by Him. And they have been epically failing through their compromise, through their partial obedience, which we all know partial obedience is full disobedience. But in this day, the nations will come. This is the promise of hope. They won't just come a little bit. They'll be streaming to it. This is the hub. This is the place to be, God and His temple. And here's why they're coming. It shows you, gives us a little bit of a glimpse into their hearts as to what they're saying. They say, come, verse 2, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. What an incredible promise. The nations turn and want to follow the God of Jacob. It's a deep, heartfelt desire to know and to obey God. But not only are the people coming, but the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord is going out. It's both directions. This is the same law that Micah has been using as his evidence in this courtroom, in his accusations. You've been failing this law, but now the law goes out. Now people are actually from the bottom of their hearts wanting to submit to God's law into his rule. And this promise is so amazing because right now in Micah's day, even the nation of Israel is not following God's law, much less the pagan nations around him. It seems bleak, but there's a little bit of hope that one day God's law will rule. And where God's rule and reign come, his justice and his kingship changes society. You see what happens in verses 3 and 4. Here's the experience of this promise. He will one day judge between many peoples, and he will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. See, the result of God's kingdom as it comes is perfect justice where the strong nation doesn't oppress the weak, where there's mercy, compassion, where there's true justice because there's no more corrupt leaders in position, but God himself is the judge. He's the one ruling over everything. When God's kingdom comes, peace is now available. So much so that they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Weapons of war aren't needed anymore. Weapons that used to bring death now are used to bring life. They become agricultural tools. There's no war and there's no conflict. There's not even a potential. There's no need for a National Guard to even be on reserve. There's no need to train for it. There will be no more war. And prosperity, everyone's sitting under their own vine and fig tree. It's an allusion back to the days of Solomon, which are the golden age for Israel. It's going to be like that. Peace, prosperity, no fear. No one will make them afraid. And deep inside, you know that is every bit of what you want. Maybe not from this picture that I've described. Maybe I've not done a good enough job of trying to paint this picture for us. But you know it because when you see the opposite, it drives you crazy inside. It breaks your heart to see the absence of these things, which shows you this is what you want all along. But it also feels like a fairy tale 
like a little bit of a fantasy. That can't happen. Which is why Micah appeals to the one who makes the promise, because you know a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. He says, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. The Lord, Yahweh, His covenant-keeping name, I, the one who do not break my promise, the ever-existing one, the Almighty, the one who can do all things, who rules over all things. God says, I am the one who makes this promise, and I will see that it happens. You realize that that's the only way that this can come about? Because we've tried, right? Humans have tried really hard to bring about this utopia, this amazing picture of peace and justice. What's really interesting is if you go visit the gardens at the UN, you will find a statue, the United Nations and their gardens, you will find a statue that is called, Let Us Beat Swords Into Plowshares. And it's a statue of a man hammering a sword into a, a, a sickle. And you realize we've tried really hard through diplomacy to bring about a world like this. And guess what? It takes one nation. We're watching it unfold around us that you cannot diplomacy this into reality. You cannot through economics or through education make these things reality. We try so hard. Now, don't hear me wrong on this. I think it's really important that as the people of God, we... We are actively involved in our communities for their betterment, bringing godly principles and wisdom to, to our government. I believe it's wise and right for us to use our finances to care for those who are in need, but we cannot ultimately bring this about. This is something the Lord Almighty has to do. But it brings me, because I mean, obviously, I have to say this one more time, that it, the reason is because we're part of the problem, right? We, we, can't, we can't fix it when you need fixed yourself. In our brokenness, we're part of the problem. We need something from outside. But it brings me to this question of like, okay, how is this going to happen? How will this picture become a reality in light of the first three chapters that we've just talked about? We've been looking at the last couple of weeks. How can God show up to bring judgment versus chapters one to three? Man, if he does that, who's left to stand? Who's left to stream to Zion? Nobody. No one's righteous. How can the temple be lifted up in chapter 4, verse 1, when just one verse prior, we read that it's going to be destroyed and plowed in like a field? The nations are coming to Zion in this day, and they're coming to the temple, but they're not coming to worship God in the temple. They're coming to rob it and destroy it. What in the world has the power to change lawbreakers and idolaters into those who delight in the law of God and want to follow Him? What can change enemies into brothers and sisters who live in peace? What can take a war-torn world full of greed and injustice and make it into a peaceful world ruled by perfect justice, so perfect that we don't even need weapons anymore? I told you the key to this passage is the first four words. In the last days. You see, this isn't just an indicator of future time. Because what happens is through the rest of the prophets and throughout the entire Scripture, this phrase, in the last days, becomes a code. It becomes a phrase that when you hear it, your mind knows it's talking about something bigger. It's talking about the days when God's Messiah will come and rule on this earth. In the days when God's anointed ruler will come, he'll roll back the curse. He'll rule with perfect justice. 
But the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of this Messiah, is that he's not simply just an ordinary human. He's also God himself. See, the book of Hebrews later helps us see this picture more clearly when it says in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, key phrase, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. The last days in Jesus, the Son, hey, there's something there. Because you see, when Jesus comes on earth, the first words that the Gospel of Mark records him saying are this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. In other words, if I can paraphrase this, hey, you remember that kingdom that Micah told you was coming? Do you remember the time when the temple of God will be exalted and lifted up? That's me. I'm that temple, and I'm going to be lifted up. But it's not the kind of lifting up that you think. You see, God does come to bring judgment. But he doesn't give it to those who deserve it. Out of his love, out of his compassion, as a show of his unbelievable deep mercy towards his people that he has created. God himself, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becomes human and takes the judgment on himself. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the one who never had an idolatrous moment in his entire life was given the consequence, the penalty of an idolater. The one who was never greedy, never coveted, was given the judgment that was due the penalty of greed. The one who never led with corruption, but only ever led with sacrificial service, took the penalty and what is due to a corrupt leader. The one who never acted unjustly at all experienced the greatest injustice, that he was murdered innocently on the cross, bearing the sins of the world that he didn't commit a single one of. Why? So that sinful idol worshipers can become righteous, so that we can be free from greed, to bring an end to hostility, so that we might actually have peace. See, it's only love, a love this deep and this strong, love that would move the God of the universe to become like us and to lay down his life for his enemies that can bring a transformation that's this drastic. And we know that this promise is not just something that we're still waiting for today, but we know that this has started now. See, in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter preaches the very first Christian sermon as God gives his spirit to the apostles, and Peter stands up and he preaches. And here's what he says. He starts to quote the prophet Joel, who also uses our code phrase, in the last days. And he says, those last days have come through the death of Christ and through his resurrection. And what's incredible to me is that men and women, well, who's around him? Do you know? The book of Acts goes on to say that it's people from all these nations, and it lists off so many of them. And all these nations who hear the message, 
that the last days has come, that Christ has brought them. Their response is, brothers, what shall we do? If I can paraphrase their, their response in Micah's language, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us His ways. We want to walk in His path. And do you realize, friends, that you and I are a part of this passage's fulfillment? See, the, Micah wasn't written to Christians in America in 2022. It was written 3,000-ish years ago to people thousands of miles away of the nation of Israel. If you're a follower of Christ today, you are fulfillment of this passage. You are the nations. We are a part of the 2.3 billion Christians around this planet. We are a picture that this hope that is promised is becoming a reality. We as the church, the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, that we, Mount Zion, We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Man, if you are a follower of Christ today, it's not just that you come to the temple, you are a part of the temple, Ephesians 2 tells us. You're a part of this living temple, one that welcomes in the people of God from all over all these other nations, one who goes out with the law and the rule of God and bring it to this world. We are the spiritual reality that Micah was ultimately looking forward to. And I can say that with confidence because we belong to Jesus and He was the temple. And 2 Corinthians tells us that every promise that is made in the entire Bible finds its fulfillment, its yes, its amen in Jesus. And yet if you and I look around, it doesn't take long to realize that something's not quite right. War, still prevalent. Injustice all over the place. Even in your own, own heart, you find, yes, a desire to obey and to follow the Lord and His law, and you're prone to rebel. This is what theologians will often call the already not yet. That there are aspects of God's kingdom that have come. That there is peace with God. That there is a heart change in those of us who have looked to Christ in faith, there is a deep desire now to obey. That we are the nations who have come to Christ. And yet it's not yet in its fullness. Because what we didn't see in Micah's day that we sit in between is that the Messiah was actually going to come in two phases. That he came once to begin something that he promised will not be stopped until he comes in his return and brings it in fulfillment. And one day when Jesus returns, friends, what is promised in Micah that we taste, that little sample becomes a full banquet that we sit at for all of eternity. And we experience this in its fullness. That is the promised hope. So what does that mean for God's people today? Verse 5. He says, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And this is the decree, this is the creed, this is the declaration that the people of God have always made. You see, anytime God gives you a reminder of the past or a glimpse of the future, it is always designed to impact and shape your present. It's Micah's way of saying, 
listen, if that's what I will be, if that's the picture that is promised for me as, the, as a part of the people of God, then I want to grow into that now, which means that I'm going to take seriously my sin. I'm not, I'm, I don't just brush the, la- the first three chapters under a rug. I don't just ignore them. I take them seriously. And I also take serious the joy of repentance. And I say that phrase on purpose because repentance is meant to be joyful. Because every time we practice repentance, what we're doing is we're saying we're aligning ourselves with the future us. If this is what I will be, then I want to do that now. I want to be a part of that now because I know that what I put my energy towards in, in following Christ and pursuing holiness and pursuing God himself, it's guaranteed to be the final outcome. That friends, your despair, your struggle against sin, the, the injustice in this world, all of that will yield one day to the rule of God when he comes in fullness. It does not have final word in your life. I don't care what lust you're dealing with. I don't care how deep your darkness is. I don't care how greedy you are. I don't care what it is that God is showing you about yourself. He's inviting you to repent, to align yourself with the future version of yourself. Because he's promised, he who began this work in you will complete it until the day that he returns. And when he does, when we see Jesus face to face, you will be like him. The picture will be complete. There will be men and women from every nation, every ethnicity gathered in front of the Lord saying, to you alone be glory, God. We want to follow your ways. There will be no more war. There will be no more violence. There will be no more sin, no more injustice. For the old order of things is gone and the new has come. That is our promised future. And until that day, by the grace of God, live the life of your promised future in the ruins of your present. Let me pray for us. Father, what hope you've held out to us. All around us, the world just seems so dark, so heavy, and when we look inside ourselves, we see stuff that's ugly and we don't want it there either. And I praise you this morning for this message of hope that promises that one day your kingdom, your rule and reign, not only in this whole universe, but in our own lives individually and personally, your rule will be total. And we will, from the bottom of our hearts, be purified of all idols and pursue you and know you and be with you because we see you face to face. And Lord, as we walk this life of faith in between your first coming and your second, may we be those who go out into this world who are, hunger and, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, as those who, who are peacemakers in this world, as those who are merciful, who live in and lean into the future version that you have promised. Lord, we cannot do that on our own. That is something that only the Lord Almighty can do in us. And we trust that you will do that, that you're doing that little bit by little bit now for your glory, for our good, and so that the other nations might know that you are God. We give you thanks for what you have promised and your commitment to bring that about. In Jesus' name, amen.